The following podcast contains advertisements. If you prefer a podcast without advertisements, you can sign up for our ad-free version at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. You'll get rid of the ads and we'll be very grateful. And my hunch was because ultimately advertisers want to target people with stuff that they want that they know people will buy. Because then the advertiser and the brand that they're working for, they make money. And advertisers and brands love money. The reason that they're so valuable in the ad ecosystem is because everyone wants to know what people are buying. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, September 16th, 2021. Today, we're bringing you another episode of Arbiters of Truth, our series on the online information ecosystem. In a 2018 Senate hearing, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg responded to a question about how his company makes money with a line that quickly became famous. Senator, we sell ads. And indeed, when you open up your Facebook page, or most other pages on the internet, you'll find advertisements of all sorts following you around. Sometimes they're things you might really be interested in buying, even if you've never heard of them before tailored to your interests with spooky accuracy. Other times, they're redundant, or just weird. Like the ad for a pair of strange plaid pajamas with a onesie-style flap on the bottom that briefly took over the internet in December 2020. Shoshana Wodinski, a staff reporter at Gizmodo, wrote a great piece at the time explaining exactly how those onesie pajamas made their way to so many people's screens. She's one of very few reporters covering the business of online advertisements outside industry publications. So Evelyn Dueck and I spoke to her this week about what it's like reporting on ads. How exactly does ad technology work? Why is it that the ad ecosystem gets so little public attention, even as it undergirds the internet as we know it? And what's the connection between online ads and content moderation? It's the Lawfare Podcast, September 16th, the broken Rube Goldberg machine of online advertising. Shoshana, thank you so much for joining us. We're particularly excited about this interview because your beat is extremely undercovered, and yet I also think there's a good argument that it's actually maybe the silent thing that kind of makes the entire online ecosystem work. So just to start with the very basics, how would you describe your beat and why are you interested in it? Technically, any other outlet, I would be called a privacy reporter because I cover data that like apps and sites and whatever, what have you. I I explain how that stuff gets collected from our devices and the companies that are doing and the weird kind of middlemen that are profiting off of it. When I was hired, even though I mostly write about privacy issues, technically I'm an advertising reporter because I write about these ad tech companies that play in the middle of behind the scenes of our platforms and our devices that are like quietly monetizing this stuff. I write about them. You you don't read about ad tech reporters anywhere except like weird niche trade magazines, which is where I used to work before. So when I got hired at Giz, which is like a Gizmodo, which is a relatively mainstream like tech website that used to be like associated with the Gawker brand, I was shocked because I'm just like this, I mean, obviously I'm covering like massive abuses of privacy and these like multi-billion dollar companies. Like this stuff is important, but it's really wonky. And I'm not sure if readers are actually like gonna dig it. And 
I'm incredibly thankful that they did indeed dig it. We need to lay some groundwork for some people that maybe, because as you say, we don't talk about this very much. We need to define some of the terms that we're talking about and things like ad tech and stuff like that. But even before we get there, I think to set the stakes of this conversation, it's useful to step back a moment and like, why is this so important? And to me, and I'm curious if you agree with this, there's that saying in this area that if you're not paying for it, you're the product. So... If you pay for something, like you're the product anyway, it's a lot of what I end up writing about is just like basic tenets of capitalism. If somebody can be profited off of, why would companies let that opportunity pass them by? So if you're only assuming that for a while I was looking into porn websites in particular, and then I picked it up again when the OnlyFans stuff happened, and then I dropped it again because so much stuff to write about every day. While I was looking into that, I noticed that the paid for the paid the pages for subscriptions or like memberships actually carried like a lot of trackers, like a lot more tracking than the sites on the free side did. And my hunch was because ultimately advertisers want to target people with stuff that they want that they know people will buy. Because then the advertiser and the brand that they're working for, they make money. And advertisers and brands love money. The reason that they're so valuable in the ad ecosystem is because everyone wants to know what people are buying. It's why right now, for various reasons, Google and Facebook dominate the ad, the digital ad world by like a long shot. Like they control, last I checked, they controlled more than half of it. Like all of the billions and billions of dollars that are spent in the US. Amazon is a close third, mostly because it has what other people don't. It knows what people are buying. And one of the pieces I just, I was writing earlier today was actually about why Facebook is like slowly rolling out like more and more like shopping stuff across platforms in order to compete with Amazon. Because if Facebook knows what you're buying, then it can tell that information to advertisers that and sway them from like Amazon's clutches. In a lot of cases, I'm writing stuff that's never been described for a regular non-wonky audience before. So you're literally like, you're basically creating a new language. I've described it in the past as I'm taking a fully baked cake. I'm taking like a bunch of like weird technical documents and like press releases and stuff like that. I'm unbaking it. I'm turning it like into like cake mix and eggs and whatever. And I'm turning that stuff into a pie, it, which is my final piece. It's it's near, I, I, I have to say it's hard work, but it's when you get it right, it is very rewarding. In a nutshell, it is the tech platforms that brands and media buyers, people with the money, it's what they use to put ads on the web and on your phone and wherever else good ads are served. That's all it is. It is, ex see, it, it sounds extremely boring. Why would anyone want to write about that? <laughs> I think a, a really good example of why somebody might want to write about that <laughs> is a, a story that you wrote in December 2020, which I love, oh. which is about a, an ad for a, I think I can safely say, a very strange pair of pajamas with, yes, that was suddenly everywhere in the internet in December 2020. And I absolutely saw it a ton and was extremely confused about why I was suddenly getting these ads for these terrible pajamas. You wrote up a guide to what exactly happened there. Could you walk us through that story? Because I think it it illustrates both what you're talking about in terms of what ad tech is and a lot of the themes we want to draw out here. All right. So 
my butt flap onesie story. I feel like it's like my magnum opus because I have like law professors DMing me and they're just like, hey, I'm teaching this in my class. It is very good. And I'm like, it's an ad for pajama. But in a nutshell, when you see an ad on a website, that is the, every website has like ad slots, ads pop into them over time. Sometimes if you like open up a web page, you won't see an ad and suddenly an ad appears. That that ad being placed there at that time is like the result of like sometimes dozens of companies working together with like literally billions of dollars between them, like doing insane mathematical calculations to get that ad on that page in front of you. And it's an insane feat of engineering and machine learning. And it's just, it's a really incredible stuff that gets that weird butt flap ad in front of your eyeballs. So in this case, one of those many companies working together flagged, in this case, the I, I was writing about this weird onesie ad with, like, with this like suggestively posed lady showing some cheek in a pair of onesie pajamas. I was writing about this ad appearing everywhere on a certain L.com story for that like, was like describing Martin Shkreli. And like this woman, he used to, I did a little bit of, I worked with some researchers and we did a little bit of digging to figure out, okay, how the hell did this happen? Because targeted ads are called targeted for a reason. Generally, the ads that I'm seeing aren't the same ads that you're seeing, but everyone was getting this weird pair of plaid onesie pajamas on this story. And obviously nobody can know for sure because the, all this stuff happens in a bunch of black boxes that are controlled by companies that never want to talk about it. The best theory I could come up with that was supported by some of the backend stuff was that the story in question, because it dealt with dating and divorce and Martin Shkreli, who's like notoriously awful, because the story dealt with those topics, it was marked as brand unsafe. So when I opened that Martin Shkreli story, there was an ad slot at the top of the page and when that web page was loading, the way these things work is that it sends like a signal, typically to an ad network or some sort of middleman, letting people know, hey, there's this type of person, here's some data about her, she's really into like XYZ, you should advertise this kind of product to her. That's usually how targeted advertising works. A web page sends some data about you into the ether and then takes a targeted ad back. In this case, the page the page carried like a little extra nugget of detail saying that this story involved some particularly kind of slimy topics. So it was unsafe for certain brands to advertise on. And I should note all of this stuff and everything I'm talking about here, it, it's all automated. It happens in the span of milliseconds. It is insane. So this unsafe story now had the difficult problem of, okay, can't just let the ad slot be empty. We have to put something there. And usually ads run on run via auction. So usually it would be, okay, whoever's paying the most will get the space. And wh whoever's paying the most and can target their ads effectively will get the space, I should say. But in this case, you know, Coca-Cola or Taco Bell doesn't want to be seen in a goddamn story of Avar and Shkreli. Those were, those kind of high rollers were out of the picture, which meant this weird Chinese e-commerce site, Ivy Rose, was like, oh, aha, I can take the, these ad slots all for myself. Obviously, they don't think that because this is all automated, but in my head, that's how I understood it. So Ivy Rose, with nobody else to kind of like 
battle against. Ivy Rose's ads just took every slot. And because nobody else wanted to be on this story, they kept doing it. I have to assume because they were paying the most, but I honestly don't know because they never got back to me. No, totally. I love that so much. The butt flat pajamas are like, put us next to anything, we'll take it. Just get us out there in front of people's faces. Butt flaps. Amazing. This is a perfect segue, though, to the to the next thing that I wanted to ask you about, because it's the, the, the premise behind everything that you just mentioned and I think is really, really important here is the concept of brand safety. It's a personal hobby horse for me because, you know, I, I study content moderation a lot and I talk about, you know, the rules that platforms make for what they do or do not allow on their platforms. Uh, and we often talk about that in sort of the language of high principle and, uh, you know, human rights and all these sort of things, uh, the First Amendment and, you know, democratic uh, accountability and things like that. And then there's this concept of brand safety in the background, which is like, what do the advertisers want their content to appear next to? And as they are the ones that make the platforms money, they are profit-making businesses. And so, you know, there's this sort of thing that we don't really talk about in the background uh, as to what the platforms, because content moderation is platforms value proposition, right? Like that's all that they are is how that they present content. And all that they want to do is, is serve ads to make money. You know, that's the famous Mark Zuckerberg uh, statement in, in, in Congress. How do you make money? Senator, we run ads. Um, so there's this ad advertisers are perhaps a really, really important stakeholder in this entire debate, but we barely talk about them. Um, and I think that, you know, advertisers' idea of valuable speech um, is probably not going to be my idea as a, as a you know, First Amendment comparative free speech uh, academic idea of, um, of, of valuable speech. So can you talk about what brand safety is and how it operates apart from in the butt flap pajama case? So brand safety or brand suitability, as it's called, is this idea of whether a story or a blog or whatever is safe for a brand to be seen alongside. So, for example, maybe you've heard of like Sleeping Giants that successfully defunded a lot of the ads that were running on Breitbart. Because ads are typically served via machine learning and all these like weird middlemen, most of the time advertisers don't even know all of the sites that their ads are running on. And because the tech, because of course they rely on third-party tech to make sure that like they're only advertising alongside safe content, that stuff is a crapshoot too. Because that happens, advertisers only know that they're funding something like Breitbart if people call them out. Advertisers are stuck with the thankless job of dumping money into the internet and letting the machines decide where to put it for them. Obviously, these people are spending sometimes like millions of dollars a pop. They're not going to, they just don't have the ability to track exactly where their money and their media spend is going to end up. So instead, they rely on third parties. So companies like OpenWeb or others in this space, these are some of these middlemen that will say, hey, we know that you don't have the resources to check where your ads are ending up. You can rely on us and we'll do it for you. And then they use some sort of fancy machine learning language about, oh, we're able to detect like hateful words or we're able to steer clear of particularly wingy parts of the web. But of course, as like they never do that because machine learning is flawed. It is incredibly flawed. <laughs> but 
because advertisers have a lot of money to spend and because this stuff is all really confusing and nobody wants to explain what gosh dang demand side whatever is to an executive at Coca-Cola, they just drop the money on these three third parties and run. And they say, we did our due diligence and that's fine. And these third parties, meanwhile, are left with the job of deciding, is this site okay for this brand's ads to run alongside? And typically they they don't care either because they know nobody's going to be checking up on them unless you get someone like me and then you do. <laughs> so let's take a step back and talk about the open web story because it's it's really, really interesting about this complicated world. And it's kind of a story about an ad serving company that was trying to do a good thing or presenting itself as doing a good thing. Exactly. Yeah. But failing. So can you just describe what open web is and what went wrong in your view? So when you think of an ad playing anywhere on the web, be it Breitbart or CNN or some random blog, they kind of work in sort of a way, think of it like a sandwich. So on one end, there's you. And on the other end, there is the advertiser. And all of the meat and cheese and lettuce in the middle is made up of like sometimes hundreds, if not thousands of tech companies, all working together and pushing and shoving to get that ad in front of your face. So open web is one of these, let's just call it like a piece of salami. Open web is like a piece of salami. And its particular value proposition, because of course these are tech companies, they need to make a profit and they need to, digital advertising is a multi-billion dollar business. Of course they want to get as many investors and customers as possible. Their Their value proposition was like, hey, we work with websites, web publishers directly And Mr. Advertiser, if you give us your money, we'll make sure that it goes to the right people. They work, there's companies, there's, oh God, off the top of my head, I can think of like dozens of companies that say the exact same thing, but OpenWeb, they had a really nice website. They had Scott Galloway as an investor. They were using all the right words in all the right ways. And they chose a really opportune time to launch this, this platform because they did it right as... Facebook was going through a quote-unquote brand boycott by a lot of major media buyers. They actually weren't media buyers, were still giving them money, but that's another story. But the point is, OpenWeb realized that there was money to be made, so they said, ah, people are looking for a place to put their money where it won't fund racism and transphobia and whatever the hell. So they said, hey, that's us. Now give us your money. The thing is... So because this industry is so black boxy and so opaque and so jargony, there's been attempts to regulate at the federal level. So you have laws like the GDPR in Europe or the CCPA over in California that try to bring some transparency or some like access inside these boxes. But for all sorts of reasons, they really fall short. So instead, the ad industry is just like, hey, clearly we have a problem. We're going to make this voluntary, but you guys should like self-regulate. You guys should regulate yourselves using these like nice sets of standards that we have. And OpenWeb, luckily for us, is one of the companies that implemented them, which means we're able to see every site that they worked with. And it turns out that a lot of their sites, this company was like, oh, we're like anti-toxicity, we're the anti-Facebook. They were funding a bunch of like right-wing nonsense. And when we reached out, they didn't even know they were doing it. And I'm just like, 
It turns out, just like they, just like OpenWeb was, was a tech company that people were relying on to put their money in the right place, OpenWeb was relying on like some other like third party, like automated brand safety vendor to give them the list of websites where they should be putting their content. So all of this, it is a sandwich that is two slices of bread and nothing but automation in the middle. Like that's the best way I can describe it. And OpenWeb was just like, OpenWeb like genuinely didn't see, at, at least from my understanding, they really didn't see like a problem with what they were doing because we would, it was me and the, these two wonderful researchers. We were, we, we asked them, we we're like, hey, why are, don't you see a problem with any of this? And they said, okay, some of these sites we messed up, but some of them, they still, they're, they're, they're still worth funding. And they're able to get away with that because they know nobody's going to check up on them. Do advertisers care? Ideally, they would. They say that they do. And brand safety tech has wrought a lot more harm because of how overzealous they are with it. It works in as much as brands are able to wash their hands of the worst parts of the internet and say, hey, we're doing our best. But it's actually on the ground. It's not working really at all. The most traumatizing story I worked at, uh, I worked on at my old job, was that somebody had given me a report that basically said, "Hey, brand safety vendors, these sort these like automation sandwiches that are in the middle of everything that's going on, they're actively defunding LGBT websites." And as somebody that's like openly bisexual and like really active in the queer community, I was familiar with many well-known like gay verticals or gay like gay outlets just suddenly disappearing overnight. They never seemed to be able to get funding. And they I knew that they always had a hard time running advertising, even on stories that are about like the most like banal stuff. I don't know, like some kind of like gay prime minister getting elected. So I was reading through the report and it turns out that Almost all brand safety tech flag LGBT outlets, not even individual stories, just entire outlets wholesale as like pornographic. But because because a lot of this, these brands are really puritanical and because the tech is, nobody's like surveying it, even though the industry is supposed to self-regulate, these problems keep on persisting. And even if we do call them out on it, you're relying on a multi-billion dollar company with shareholders and yada yada to basically say, hey, gay people are okay. And not all of them are going to do that. So I think that was the story that was like the last straw. And I was like, I got to go. No, that's exactly where I was hoping you'd go with that, because it's exactly the point that I was making before about how advertisers' conception of what valuable speech is is not going to be the same as my conception of what valuable speech is. And they're just going to err on the side of caution all the time. Like, maybe they're not going to be homophobic or, or whatever, but they just like, why bother exposing themselves to the potential risk that someone else might think that this is controversial? And so they, they have no, no stake in sticking up for, for speech in, in particular. More often than not, the stuff relies on like keywords. So if you include stories about, especially last summer, we saw this a lot with like stories that had to do with like Black Lives Matter or like a police brutality story. These stories just like these stories weren't getting ads, which meant these stories weren't getting funding. And when stories don't get funding, newsrooms shut down. Like that's how journalism works. And we're a scrappy bunch. But when we don't know how this tech works 
And it's just like randomly shutting off during a really kind of crucial, albeit upsetting news cycle. It's terrifying as a journalist when your job is like to speak to truth, but the truth is harder to fund. The Black Lives Matter protests, in a sense, also provide a counterexample because we saw at that stage this really big campaign, this Stop Hate for Profit campaign, where over a thousand companies stopped advertising on Facebook for for the long period of a single month, uh, June 2020, as a way of pressuring the company to do more about hate speech in some amorphous way. And I wonder whether that provides a counterexample to all of the things we were just saying about the influences of advertisers on these platforms, because it's hard to see any discernible impact from stop hate for profit campaign as a lasting as a lasting campaign and maybe it's just that these companies are too powerful that they can take the hit of uh, a, a few companies not advertising on them for a month and not really not really see any difference to their bottom line but I'm curious if you think my assessment is correct or what you make of that everything you just said is true but also none of the companies actually stopped advertising the stop hate for profit movement was itself a giant ad campaign for all these brands to make it look like they're standing up for the little guy so you would give them more money but like the second i heard that going on i was like there is no way that they're actually pulling their like massive ad dollars because facebook as evil as it is has a lot of user data and has a lot of reach and that's what big brands want so they're not going to pull their money from facebook just because they're upset about a little bit of racism so after approximately five minutes of research i realized that they were pulling their money from Facebook proper in the US and just diverting it to properties that were off Facebook. So what does that mean? You know, Facebook as a monolith, you know, runs ads in news feeds and runs ads on Instagram, but they run ads in third-party apps, not sites via the Facebook audience network. And when I reached out to them and I was just like, hey, I know you're going to stop advertising on Facebook newsfeed, good for you. Are you still going to be using fan because you're not, your ads are still going through Facebook and you're still giving Facebook money, but you don't have the Facebook stink because you're showing up in a third party app. And for the most part, they all said, yeah, we're still using this network. Why wouldn't we? Our problem, like the, they didn't say this out loud, but their problem wasn't that Facebook was a hub for awful violence against marginalized groups. Their problem was that their ads were appearing next to it. And they were just like, yeah, that's icky. We don't want to be there. We're fine with giving Facebook money, though. Yeah, that's fine. And on the other hand, Facebook right now, amid scrutiny from regulators, is using small businesses as like a human shield. They've been doing this for a while because they know that small businesses are dependent on them to reach customers. That's there's no other way to say it. Small businesses, small politicians, small anything, you need Facebook to function. And that's the result of monopolizing and like awful business tactics that Facebook has taken over the year. Surprise, you end up with an entire country that's somewhat dependent on you for their entire small business infrastructure. So not long after stock paper profit kicked off, I think it was Sheryl Sandberg that said, no, we're we know that like small businesses aren't going to stop advertising on us, so it's fine if the big guys leave. But the thing is, the big guys didn't even leave because they also can't because Facebook is a monopoly. So the stop pay for profit movement on the whole, it really revealed a few things to me. One, that brands are either too dependent on Facebook to be able to leave or they just don't care about what it's doing. 
or that they can't afford to care. And two, when you're a monopoly, you can pretty much do whatever you want with the two, when you're a monopoly, you can pretty much do whatever you want to whomever you want with minimal repercussions. And three, I knew all of this stuff was happening because I know the ins and outs of the ad tech ecosystem and I know where the money goes. I know what questions to ask. Nobody else knew. They were just taking these like press releases from these brands at face value, which is fine, but they're lying. Or not lying, but they're leaving out crucial information about where their money is going. So the third thing I learned was like, wow, we are so far away from getting like Evelyn, as I'm sure these companies are not transparent at all. And they know they don't have to be because they're going to get money anyway. So it's just, uh, it's, uh, it, it is the worst job. I felt that groan in my bones. I just want you to know. <laughs> so I think that gets to something that I wanted to ask, which was that one of the drivers of this kind of lack of focus on the ad industry seems to be its opacity. Like, it is hard to research. A lot of the stuff, apart from your work, is behind paywalls. It's on industry sites. So I'm interested to hear, like, why do you think that is? Is Does it have to do with the fact that, like, both platforms and advertisers aren't particularly interested in the public understanding how the sausage gets made? It, it reminds me a little bit of what people say about money laundering, which is that it's yeah. intentionally complicated yeah. so that yeah. regulators in the public don't catch on. I've never heard that. I've, I've never heard that phrase being made, but no, it's literally exactly the same. And when we talk about, like, the those laws I was talking about before, like the CCPA, they get at the heart of everything, but they're either lobbied out of being too strict or they just, they're not able to go deep enough because the public understanding isn't there. At my old job at the trades, I was invited to moderate a panel. And one of the questions that I asked everybody at the end, when I knew I could be kicked off stage was why this was like a conference that was like hosted by a live ramp. One of the, if arguably one of the biggest data brokers out there, everyone on, everyone like, the net worth of everybody on that stage was like enough to pay off my student loans forever. And I asked everyone, I'm like, hey, you're arguably very important people that handling very important data and you're doing it using this really complicated tech that we all agree is complicated. That's why we have to like self-regulate. We wouldn't have to do that if things were easier to understand. So I asked them, whose responsibility is it to educate the public about this stuff? Because like, they're coming for you. GDPR had passed at this point. And I was like, stuff in the US is going to happen too. And it's, you can't run from it forever. And nobody really had a good answer. They basically said, oh, it's too complicated. Or, oh, people don't really care about it, which is true. Who cares about the way ads like appear on your screen? At this point, we see so many ads every day that a lot of people are just like, it's an annoyance. I don't want to think about them at all. And until you end up with a, a case like Cambridge Analytica, which, by the way, was not as much a bombshell as people assume, because stuff like that happens all the time, always. When stuff like that gets uncovered, it's a massive scandal because people realize how deeply broken these systems really are. But there's a lot of, it's, it's, I remember hearing a military reporter say they, the uh, federal agencies like to hide the incriminating stuff and the really boring stuff. That's the way I think about it. Because yeah, a lot of the stuff is super boring and super jargony and awful to understand. I would not wish it on anybody, but I do think we're getting a little bit better at it because reporters are starting 
to catch on. I'm certainly not the only one. There's a lot of like really great work out there, particularly about what apps are doing. A lot of people are scared of apps. And people with every story were getting like a, a little more public understanding of not only about how this stuff works, but why it feels so wrong when we see it written out. I know I've had people tell me that like they've left the ad tech industry based on like stuff that I've written. And I'm like that, that, that is the best thing I could hope for. Obviously capitalism marches on. It's still a multi-billion dollar industry with more than 8,000 companies. But if I can get one guy out of there, I'm happy. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Actually, that's really interesting because it does feel like the sort of basis of our conversation is that this ecosystem is a mess. It's rotten, it's broken, however you want to describe it. Like, why is it such a mess? Is it even possible to imagine an ad ecosystem that isn't a mess? Or is this just inherent to the way that it functions? You're essentially asking me, hey, we have problems in our economy. How would you fix the economy? And it's just like, how do you, how do you? I do think that because ad tech is the primary funding source for the entire internet, not just in the US, but globally. Every country has their own laws and their own rules and data, because data doesn't respect borders, it flows internationally. Like I've written a lot about, oh, people are scared of like data going to China. When data goes to China, when like Americans data goes to like China and Russia and that every single day, like there's no way, at least with our current infrastructure to stop it. So it's partially like the only it's partially an infrastructure issue because ad tech is the internet's economy. It's how money gets made and it's how websites stay up and how journalists like me still have a job, even though we don't have a newspaper. It's in a lot of ways, I'm incredibly grateful that it exists the way it does because uh, journalists in the privacy space will often get a lot of flack. Hey, like cookies and trackers, those pay your salary, which they do. If ad tech was gutted in its current state, I would lose my job, my, a lot of my friends would lose their job. There's definitely issues, but it does succeed in getting some money somewhere, even if it's not always into the right places. But I will say, the, in, so in that, so I'm using that as a preface to say, in a lot of ways, it does exactly what it was designed to do, but it was designed to funnel money to corporations that are like to like monopolistic corporations that are controlled by like a small cabal of white guys who clearly do not give a damn about the violence and hate speech and just awful stuff that these platforms rot that that their platforms rot it's invariably controlled by people like that and people like that will do lip service to caring about these sorts of issues, but they know that they don't have to because it's so opaque. And they know, hang on. And they know nobody's like going to question them on it because, you know, for better or worse, a lot of our understanding about things like digital ads and digital privacy come from these companies. But that's a problem that I've, I've bumped up a uh, against a lot, especially reporting on Google. You have a company that's literally there at, since the dawn of the internet. It is so deeply ingrained in our understanding about what the web really is. And for the past two decades, maybe more, I'm not, I don't remember offhand when Google was founded, for as long as I can remember, this is a company that's been 
talking about digital privacy, as have companies like Microsoft and IBM. We definitely care about certain, like, people definitely care about, I'm getting on my privacy soapbox, but people definitely care about privacy. But I think we care because we know what an invasion of privacy feels like. If I'm like, if if my door gets left open and some like stranger barges in, of course, I'm going to feel super invaded and super like uncomfortable and say, hey, get out of here and I'll shoo them out with a broom. But when you try to scale that or try to say, what does a digital, like when is an app too invasive or when is a site too creepy or when is an ad tech platform, like when is what they're doing not okay? I have asked that question to regulators and friends of mine and every, everybody gives me a different answer. We know what the laws say, but the laws, like I said before, they often don't go deep enough. So because the stuff is complicated and computer science-y and full of like weird, squishy ethical issues, we rely on companies that were there since the beginning to give us some sort of like guiding light. Even if they're, we probably don't realize this because, but even though these are the companies that have everything to lose by being regulated, we often rely on them for sorts of definitions and explainers on this sort of stuff anyway, because they're all that we have. And the alternative is learning to code and who wants to do that? We, like, like I said, we've been getting better, particularly because folks in the ad industry have started speaking up, especially post Cambridge Analytica, they realize that a lot of the norms in, the, in this industry are just normal for them and very profitable for them, but clearly doing more harm than good. And at the end of the day, it was about, hang on, they were doing more harm than good. And at the end of the day, they just, they realized that the digital economy is the result of what happens when profit-driven corporations with basically infinite potential, because they, they can grow to literally be the size of the internet on a global scale, they could go into space. What happens when a company with infinite potential is allowed to basically create its own economy with like basically extremely little government oversight? And what you get is a bloated ecosystem with, like I said before, there's more than 8,000 companies right now. A lot of them either lie or mislead investors about what they do, like open web. And nobody really seems to care because the money is flowing anyway, at least at least with our current economy, at least with like the IRL dollars and cents economy, money feels real, what a scam feels like. When that money is digital and being thrown into a black box, it's a lot harder to say, huh, feels like a scam. I think what you're underlining is it's, it's so much easier to just like yell First Amendment or, you know, like censorship um, rather than it is to engage with all of this like really technical stuff. You're, you're like, you know, we, we made a sandwich metaphor before and I'm sure that that's like, it's, it's, it's really fascinating and descriptive, but not like the basis for writing legislation. And this stuff is really, really hard. Um, and it's, it's not clear who's incentivized to really fix it properly. The only people that are incentivized to fix it are like state AGs and they don't know what's going on. So they rely on Google to fix it. But Google's incentivized <laughs> to not tell them the truth. So you see the problem here. But to your point, like speech stuff, 
I don't get how that stuff works. I don't know the lingo. No, nobody else that's talking about it does either, so don't worry about it. Just yell First Amendment from time to time and you're good. It's so easy to yell, hey, Facebook is invading my privacy, but then you sit down and, but then you like, you ask how or why. And then the question becomes a lot more complicated to answer, which is terrible because I feel like very often I'm the bad guy because I have to go like, you know, you're saying that you feel uncomfortable, but why do you feel uncomfortable? And then over time, other kind of argument starts to fall apart. But the only reason it starts to fall apart is because these companies are so ingrained in our everyday life that they've become impossible to escape because they're monopolies and people know it's uncomfortable, but they don't have the tools to actually escape it. So it's not, they feel powerless, but it's not their fault. There's one stat that I just want to get out and ask you to explain because it just blew my mind. Like we've been talking about how broken this ecosystem is. And there was this stat that you cited in the open web story that we've been talking about, about a study that by a UK trade group of how ad dollars got divvied up across the web and the finding that 17, oh, sorry, the finding that 15 cents on the dollar wound up in what the researchers called an unknown delta, a Bermuda Triangle at the center of the web where these billions of dollars just vanished. What? Like, how does that happen? How does 15 cents on the dollar just disappear? And where does it go? So advertising is a industry that's worth tens of billions of dollars and growing every day. 15 cents on the dollar is going somewhere. Nobody seemed to really, people would mumble about it behind the scenes, but nobody was really willing to say it out loud. But again, imagine if we were talking about actual dollars. Imagine if like the bank, like you asked for, I don't know, $40 at the bank and they gave you $38 instead. And and now imagine if you complained and the bank just said, I don't know what you're talking about. Sounds like a you problem. And then it was the only bank in town. That's basically the problem that the internet's facing right now. But it's normalized because, oh, because like at the end of the day, these companies are these companies are still profitable. They're just making nine point five billion dollars instead of nine point seven billion dollars. It's not their profit margins that are under fire here. It's the people at the other end. News publishers, like I said before, like websites like those LGBT outlets I was mentioning before, or the site that I write for, Gizmodo. We are at the end of that sandwich. So like I said before, sandwich metaphor, these sorts of middlemen are stuck with the job of deciding how money gets divvied up. Of course, they're going to, hang on, what's the word? Of course, they're going to like benefit themselves. And of course, they're going to like sometimes skim a little something off the top because they know nobody's going to check. And even if they do, what? It's it's not illegal. In any in like in any other scenario, this would be a hundred. I'm pretty sure this is a law blog, so don't quote me. This is not legal advice, but I'm pretty sure in any other scenario, if you pay for a certain service and that the middleman that you are paying just takes 15 cents over the span of like billions of dollars, that feels like it should be illegal, but it's not because the laws we have for this sort of stuff were written for real world physical banks with real world physical money. They weren't written for black boxes passing gigabytes of data like over multiple continents to the tune of once every half a millisecond. That's uh, that's just the that's just the. I think that's the uh, biggest problem here. Things like I used to write about ad fraud, 
a lot at my old job. And the ad fraud like takes many different forms, but in short, it's basically just when ads ads are reporting fraudulent clicks or fraudulent impressions or fraudulent whatever so that they can pull money from middlemen, even though the ads didn't play where they were supposed to go or or they weren't seen by as many people as they were promising. It makes sense. It's it's a form of fraud. The FBI and I think other federal agencies have said that they've wanted to look into it. They've said that they've wanted to because it seems like a problem. And every once in a while, you'll get like massive like federal suits or like big splashy court cases where, oh, we found this scammer like swindling like millions of dollars from like news sites. And then nothing happens because they know that they should pass laws, but passing laws means trying to tackle these really arcane systems and the DOJ has better things to do. So instead we rely on these, we we rely on these sorts of like self, these honor systems and these attempts to self-regulate, which we all know I am of course talking in circles here, but that is my job because it's, my job is basically to hammer in how deeply messed up all of this is because it's a system that is obviously broken and we know is broken and exploits publishers that are shutting down local newsrooms that are shutting down left and right. But nobody seems to be willing to tackle it because we don't understand how it works. And when we try to understand how it works, these companies that act as gatekeepers will lie to us. And the only way we can actually fight back is if we start using their own tools against them. So a lot of the work that I do doesn't rely on from writing about like some Facebook thing. I'm not going to use their, I'm not going to use their comms to consumers. I'm going to use their comms to marketers and businesses and developers because Facebook has no reason to lie to them uh, the same way that they do to all of us. And that is my soapbox. So I want to take a little bit of a tangent and ask you about something that is not directly related to ads, but it's relevant. Um, So you wrote this article about the SB8 abortion restrictions in Texas. So so, um, as listeners probably know, um, this is the very restrictive Texas bill uh, limiting abortion access after six weeks. Um, and of course, it raised content moder- moderation issues because, as Evelyn likes to say, everything is content moderation. Um, and this also gets to, uh, I think, an underappreciated aspect of content moderation, which is that it's often not at you know the layer that users interact with, but deeper in the internet stack, which is what your story was about. So could you tell us about how on earth SB8 also became a content moderation story? Not long before the law went into effect, this group called Texas Right to Life that had a lot to do with the law getting passed in the first place, they put out a a website with the sole purpose of basically tattling on folks that people thought were violating the law. So somebody found a doctor who performed an illegal abortion or some guy that like drove that woman to get the procedure done. This good Samaritan could leave their name and like contact info and like details on the website to let Texas Right to Life know that they did. And I, before my piece came out, I'd actually spent like a full week just like emailing their site hosting provider every day, just being like, hey, you know that this is a thing, you know that they're using your services can you comment? And then they didn't until about nine days in, 
my editor reached out to me and he was like, hey, you're clearly not getting anywhere because I was just like, okay, this is clearly vile, vile stuff. Their hosting provider was GoDaddy and GoDaddy does have certain rules against like content. Like we won't host sites that harass individuals or do like actual harm, which is why GoDaddy dropped uh, Gab a few years back. I was reading through their terms of service, like GoDaddy's terms of service, the web hosting provider, and I found that they won't allow sites that violate people's privacy. And that could really mean anything. It can mean a site that publishes people's credit card info or like medical history. It can mean all sorts of things. And I was like, aha, this is clearly a website that's violating people's privacy because these are women getting really stigmatized medical, like medical procedures done. And like, people who might not want to be like known for helping those women get those procedures for better or worse. So in this case, I was like, okay, this is a site like Texas right to life was never going to take the site down. It was being pummeled left and right by like hackers and like people that were like spamming the tip line. It was a tip line. They were spamming it with like pictures of Shrek and like furry porn and reports that I need to abort my 30 year old son because he's eating all the pop tarts, like stuff like that. None of that was working. Every time it got like booted, it would come back. They were great. Weren't paying attention to spammers. I asked my friend to comb that website to see like what the code looked like. And he found that it was harvesting people's IP addresses, which as you might know, IP addresses, the low hanging fruit, you can't really do much with them. You can change them if you're using a VPN. Uh, they don't really reveal a lot about a person. But I was able to prove that this website, even if GoDaddy didn't care about these women and their friends and family and their doctors, even if GoDaddy didn't care about them, I was able to prove that it was harvesting data from people that use the site without their consent. And that was a clear violation of their, TO, of their terms of service. So I wrote my piece and I was like, hey guys, you might not know this, but every website in order to stay online has a hosting provider. In this case, they, this guy's name is GoDaddy. They have clear rules that the site is violating. We should let them know that this isn't okay. I put that up and then I went on vacation to a cabin in Pennsylvania for the week. And less than 24 hours later, again, this was after I hadn't heard from them for more than a week. Less than 24 hours later, GoDaddy contacted me to let me know that the site was booted and they had to find a new hosting provider. So in this case, the people responsible for allowing this kind of like hateful, gross content to thrive, it, it boiled down to some like obscure internet company that the average Joe on the street isn't going to know about and isn't going to know how to contact. Yeah, like you said, in a lot of cases, content moderation or legal stuff, it falls on the middlemen. And often those are the people that do the best job of hiding from public scrutiny. And it, but it gets to something that you referenced before as well, which is that you know the questions to ask, right? Like you knew yeah. how to follow that chain and you were talking about with the Stop Hate for Profit campaign earlier, yeah. that you kn knew what questions to ask and you didn't yeah. have to just rely on corporate blog posts yeah. or press releases that sold a certain kind of story. And so I guess I'm one of those people that doesn't know what questions to ask. This space is really yeah. opaque to me. Yeah. And so I'm wanting to know what questions should we have asked you about this space that we haven't asked? Like what's the interesting dynamic or the next story that you're watching? Or what is the question that we should all be asking about this that we haven't talked about yet? I always like to say I'm a baby journalist. I've only been doing this for two years. I often feel like I come across like everyone else is wrong and I'm the only one like asking the right questions about this, which 
isn't true at all. Everyone's work, ev everyone's work, like on these topics, if you're talking about targeted as or cotton moderation or anything, if you're writing facts that are at least true, you're advancing people's understanding of these issues, which means that you're doing a good. Sometimes the stories aren't 100% right, like how even like that often happens to me. Sometimes I'm too myopic and I lose important details and then I have to go back and correct stuff. So it's even if we're stuck relying on Facebook or Google's like corporate jargon, there's always going to be people that manage to find or there's always going to be like at least one question that you ask that's going to be that's going to uncover something that we didn't know before because that's what questions do and even if a company like facebook or google offers a non-answer which is what often happens to me that tells you something too because it tells you that a company is too uncomfortable to talk about something so you definitely like don't need to know how the sandwich gets made in order to report on this or talk about this stuff or ask questions you just need to be curious something that i'm really interested in right now is children's privacy september of 2019 the ftc found that Google and YouTube were serving targeted ads to kids because kids use YouTube. <laughs> it's plain and simple. And the FTC was like, that's a COPA violation. You got to pay this landmark fine of $170 million, which is pennies to Google. But that's besides the point. Around this time, YouTube was like, okay, we'll pay the fine. We'll change things on our main app. And we're going to roll out this handy thing called YouTube Kids. That's this really sweet app that like doesn't do, it sure it serves ads sometimes, but it doesn't serve targeted ads and all the content's safe for children and it's totally fine and great. And the FTC seemed pretty satisfied with that because it was COPA compliant. However, I'm admittedly still researching COPA because I'm a tech person. I'm not a legal person. And this is only as listeners of this legal podcast will know, it's jargony. It's hard to understand. So I'm still working through it. But I will say it boils down to what I was talking about before, where we know what an abuse of privacy feels like when we can put it into tangible terms. When we're just like, YouTube is spying on my kids. It's really hard to say why, not only why that feels wrong, but also how they're doing it, which is why you'll see a lot of class actions in the tech privacy space get uh, thrown out pretty quickly. So in the case of YouTube Kids, I'm just like, I know that even when ads aren't served in a targeted manner, they collect information about the device, not, not necessarily about the person watching, but about the device that they're on. So I know that there are like so-called COPA compliant ad networks that like specialize in like reaching kids or stuff that's in kids apps that seems shady. And I'm not saying that anything these companies are doing is wrong. It feels wrong. It definitely feels wrong. But from a legal perspective, it's all okie dokie. But that's only because COPA was written, again, for these like very tangible abuses of privacy. So that's what I'm looking into right now. And it is deeply upsetting. <laughs> Talking to, because I have uh, younger siblings and I'm just like, oh no, y'all are going to have to deal with this. <laughs> Thank you for bringing in YouTube, which uh, will definitely make Evelyn's day, <laughs> since we always try to bring up YouTube. Wait, really? Yeah, it's, it's a it's thing. Evelyn's, I have yeah. this thing that they somehow fly under the radar in every conversation. I'm glad we didn't let them off the hook here. You know why? And this is the last thing I'm going to say. It's because Facebook made the mistake of putting everything under the Facebook brand. Uh, Google and Alphabet 
parent company. They have like hundreds of subsidiaries that are all doing insane stuff, but we would never know because Google is the problem. All right. I think we're going to have to leave it there. Shoshana, thank you so much for joining. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare podcast series on our online information ecosystem. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare podcast feed, and we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer this episode was Hamza Shitu. Our producer is Jen Patya Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare podcast and whatever app you use, and consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com backslash lawfare. You'll gain access to an ad-free version of this podcast and weekly Lawfare Live events, along with other benefits. As always, thanks for listening.